Okay, so the year was 2001. Some of you weren't even born in 2001, uh, but 2001, the World Series uh, happened, as it does every year. And uh, I don't know a whole lot about baseball. I'm just going to put that out there. I followed it a lot more when I was a kid. But the one thing I learned uh, early on was just don't root for the Yankees, okay? That's like the number one rule of baseball. Don't root for the Yankees. That got an applause in the first service. I'm not so, uh, I think you're with me at least a little bit here. Right? So uh, the World Series 2001 was the New York Yankees versus the Arizona Diamondbacks. And here's what happened. The Yankees were by far the favorites to win. But in seven games, the Diamondbacks several times made late inning comebacks, forcing extra innings, eventually winning games, taking it all the way to a game seven where they won in just epic proportion. I mean, this is style, right? This is baseball. This is the, the drama of it all. And it was the, the most amazing comeback maybe in a World Series ever. It was so inspiring that Sports Illustrated magazine uh, wrote an article called The Top Ten Comebacks of All Time. Top 10 greatest comebacks of all time. Now, this they cover the gamut here, right? Number 10 is Elvis Presley, okay? Not a baseball player. Uh, probably not, wouldn't be a good one, I'm not sure, but if you remember, I was not alive, maybe you were, his, his career was declining. I mean, it was basically dead. Uh, but then he has a TV special, and it just all of a sudden is like his, his fame was renewed and restored. And then he just launched into this legend status, right? So you got Elvis at number 10. You got the comeback of Go-Go Boots. Uh, this was on this list, and so my, my, the ladies in the house know what I'm talking about. You men, just ask later or Google it or something. Uh, Go-go boots. Then like the whole other side of the spectrum, you got um, humanity itself coming back from the death, plague, the, the black plague. Uh, this is like an unbelievable story, right? That Something that should have wiped us all out and we somehow managed uh, to survive. And then you got Muhammad Ali. Um, when I was growing up, I had a little poster of Muhammad Ali. Uh, he's a great, inspiring hero, uh, at least in sports. And, uh, and Muhammad Ali, though, suffered a seven-year ban from boxing. One of the greatest boxers of all time was banned for seven years. But when, he, when his ban was up, uh, he had a little fight that you might know of called the Rumble in the Jungle, where he fought Marshall's own George Foreman, by the way, and, uh, and, and won. And he reclaimed his championship title after seven years out of boxing. Now, can I just tell you, like, when I read this and decided, yes, I'm going to use this in my message today, there was a little piece of me that was like, you know what? What if George Foreman shows up to Moberly on Easter <laughs> and I have to say that in front of him? <laughs> I think he'd be okay with it. I'm not sure. Number three was Michael Jordan's first return to basketball, uh, which much, much greater than the next. Uh, but number two, all-time comeback was the nations of Japan and Germany. Having been devastated by World War II, these nations uh, returned to world economic power within one generation. I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. But the number one greatest comeback of all time, as named by Sports Illustrated Magazine, November 12, 2001, and I quote, no surprise probably, Jesus Christ. AD 33 is what it says, stuns Romans and defies critics by his resurrection from the grave. I don't think they had any idea how right they were. But the, the first nine things, people who care deeply about those things, that number is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But what makes Jesus different? What makes Jesus unique? Why is Jesus truly and eternally 
great. It is true, Jesus died. We've already sung about it, we've referenced it. Jesus did die, and he didn't die a private death. Uh, I just did a funeral a few weeks ago for a family who wanted just, you know, we want just a kind of a graveside and don't want many people there. It's sort of just a family affair. Let's just keep it small. And I understand that, and people do that often. It's very popular these days in end-of-life kind of services. But Jesus' death was very public. It was not private. Private deaths for famous people are when conspiracy theories start, like Elvis, right? You know, is he alive? Is he not? There's probably people with different opinions in this room over something so kind of trivial. Well, famous people, when they die privately... That leaves the room open for a conspiracy theory. Well, Jesus did not die. He died very publicly. His death was humiliating. His death was torturous even. And though some people tried to put a conspiracy there, it wasn't even a possibility or a plausibility. Jesus' death was public, humiliating, torturous. The Persians had invented crucifixion hundreds of years before Jesus. But the Romans perfected it. The Romans used it. Uh, very, very effectively uh, to curb uh, criminal activity, of which Jesus was not guilty. Crucifixion was orchestrated like a symphony of agony, led by a conductor, an executioner, who knew just what instruments to call on to play at particular times to either elicit more pain and extend the agony, or to bring it to a dramatic end. It was a drama of death on display for public applause. So it's hard to deny a public death. It's even harder to deny a public burial. Uh, We pick up today where we left off last week in the New Testament Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it there uh, to follow along. If not, that's okay. We're going to have the words on the screen there for you. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, And this week, we're going to look not only at his burial, but obviously his resurrection. And so Matthew, chapter 27, we pick up in verse 57, where it says, When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who had himself uh, also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. Now let me just interject here. Other gospel accounts, other biographies of Jesus uh, sort of give us a little more detail here that Pilate actually was a little bit surprised that Jesus was already dead. So he even sent a centurion, a soldier of his, to go and confirm it. And so even from Pilate's centurion reported back to Pilate, Jesus' death was confirmed. And only at that point would Pilate release the body of Jesus to this man, Joseph? So picking up again in verse 59, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there, facing the tomb. Now what Matthew is trying to do here is he's trying to emphasize that Jesus wasn't just having an off day. Jesus wasn't just struggling at the end of his life and, you know, ultimately going to like kind of have a health bounce back, 
right? He wasn't, he wasn't like trying to get into extra innings. You know, he, he wasn't batting for a full, a full count. Like it was over. This was game over for Jesus. No breath in his lungs, like no reaction physically. When you think dead, he was dead. This is what Matthew's trying to get across. By all accounts, it looked like the enemy had won. The Romans, certainly, who didn't have as much against Jesus, except that they didn't want him inciting any more riots, right? So they were kind of against him, and, and they were for crucifying. We saw how the, the Roman soldiers treated Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 and 27. Then also the Jewish leaders. They, they wanted Jesus dead, even from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. They were calling for Jesus to die. They were actually you know, scheming against him for his death for up to three years. And now it's happened. It seems like they got what they wanted, right? But even more than that, there's the spiritual enemies. It's what Chuck Swindoll calls the unholy trinity of death, darkness, and the devil. So when the tomb was sealed, it appeared that Jesus had been silenced. It appeared that his influence had been squashed. And even though Jesus had taught it, even though he had predicted it, no one seemed to realize, not the Romans, not the Jewish leaders, not even the spiritual powers, not even the disciples seemed to realize that Jesus' death was the weapon God designed to inflict the fatal blow to all of evil, to reverse the curse of sin. So yeah, Jesus died, but his death was just the beginning of the death of death. And just to be certain of their assumed victory, the Jewish leaders then urged Pilate to place guards at the tomb. So if death and burial wasn't enough, which, by the way, when is it not enough? Only one time in history. Now the enemy had the tomb sealed and guarded, but no amount of defense could stop what God was about to do. Look with me in chapter 28, the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. And just then, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Jesus resurrected. He died and now he lives again. 
This is incredible. The resurrection is the linchpin to the entire Christian faith. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity, right? And it actually remains the best historical argument for Christianity. It's never been disproven. What do I mean? Well, you can look at any other leader of any other nation or any other movement or religion and their body or their bones will be there to to tell us and prove to us that when they died, they're still dead. But Jesus' tomb was empty and no one has ever found any other evidence of him remaining dead. And I would venture to say they never will. You know, Jesus' tomb is empty, but did you notice that when the angel rolled the stone away, it wasn't to let Jesus out. He was already gone, right? You know, surely there's some other explanation. You might be thinking, like, surely there's a coincidence here, or there's a mix-up, or they showed up at the wrong tomb, or something happened, and something got kind of squirrely. But no, that's not it at all. This was actually going according to plan, exactly. Did you hear what God said to the women through the angel? He was there to remind them of what Jesus had already told them would happen. Jesus already told them several times he had predicted being raised on the third day. I mean, this is incredible. This is something Jesus announced before he was dead. How could someone predict a miracle and then die and be unable to actually do the miracle because they're dead, but the miracle still happens? This is amazing, and Jesus predicted it. Even so much detail that in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus spoke to the disciples when he told Peter that Peter was going to deny him. And he said, but after I rise, I'll meet you in Galilee. And they didn't even acknowledge it at the time. It's like the the Bible doesn't even tell us that the disciples responded whatsoever. It was like almost that it went right over their heads. But Jesus was already preparing the way in that much detail. It wasn't a secret plan either. You know, it wasn't like uh, Ocean's Eleven where, you know, these 11 guys and Jesus get together and they're in a dark room and they're all kind of making this scheme and this plan like, okay, we're going to pull off the biggest highest known to man. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't secret at all. Everybody knew about it. It says here in verse 62 and following, the chief priests and the Pharisees knew about Jesus' prediction for resurrection. And they knew it. They took it so seriously that that's when they urged Pilate for guards at the tomb. But then after they heard about the resurrection, after they heard the tomb was empty, you know, they went to the guards. It will tell us just a little bit later in Matthew that that they actually created a conspiracy theory related to Jesus, and they bribed the guards to tell their story. Now, let me just pause here and recognize the stubbornness of the heart of man. Maybe you even find a piece of your story relating to God the way these men did. Jesus, having predicted his resurrection, came back to life, just as he said he would. Yet these men were so infatuated with clinging to what little power over their lives that they had, they completely missed the miraculous resurrection power of Jesus. It just went right over their heads. They likely, these men, inspected the tomb. I mean, we know the angel invited the women in, but after that whole scene moved on, I can, 
I can imagine these chief priests and Pharisees were going through that garden going, is this the tomb? Now let's make sure. Is this one, this was Joseph's? Yeah, this was Joseph's. And now we know Jesus was buried in here, right? Okay, now let me look in here. Let me look around. You go, oh, see the linens laying there? Okay, now guards, they interviewed the guards, I'm sure. Guards, what did you see? Okay, and then you saw that, and then, okay, then that happened, and then you did what? You fell over? Okay, do you have any recollection? All right, you know, and they're experiencing the reality of the resurrection, but it's just that they're so closed off to it and they're so interested in keeping their own power that they completely reject the miraculous power of Jesus. Now, it's no wonder 2,000 years removed from the physical event of the resurrection that so many people in our world today are clinging to an illusion of power over their own lives rather than surrendering their lives to the miraculous, life-giving resurrection power of Jesus. At what point, what will it take for you to see the resurrected Jesus and go, okay, that's bigger than me. I'm going to give my life to that. These men weren't willing to do that. May we be people who surrender our lives to Jesus because of the reality of his resurrection. When we see Jesus and the resurrection face to face, it ought to change us. Now, speaking of face to face, you know, it wasn't a secret plan. It also wasn't only revealed to a select few people. Some people think the resurrection is like the Bigfoot story, and where just some people in the backwoods, like, you know, they, they go, I, I know I saw something, right? <laughs> you know, something lurking over there in the shadows, I'm pretty sure. I got a blurry photo, you know. Some people think that the story of the resurrection is like that. Like there's some guy out, you know, outside of Jefferson, which that's like Bigfoot capital of the world, by the way. I'm not just knocking on Jefferson. And he's out there going, I saw what I saw. You know, that's not the resurrection story. The Bible actually has many eyewitness accounts of the resurrection, not just people seeing Jesus, but people interacting with Jesus, starting with the women there in the garden of the tomb. They interacted with Jesus. Then the disciples who had interactions with Jesus. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, which wrote that letter some 20 plus years after the resurrection, he's naming names of people who had been giving their lives to telling the story of the resurrection of Jesus because they saw it firsthand and interacted with Jesus, not just names of individuals, but names of groups of people who interacted with Jesus. One group numbered more than 500, Paul writes. What does that mean? That means that you could cross-examine the equivalent of the entire population of a small East Texas town and get the same exact story over the course of 20 plus years. Now, if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. In fact, the resurrection was such a fact of reality in the first century that many Christians believed without a doubt that Jesus was fully God. It was almost like they took that aspect of it for granted. Certainly, I mean, we saw the resurrection. Jesus is God, but they struggled with believing Jesus was fully man. That's why John, in the letter of 1 John chapter 1, he, he had to write this. He said, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed 
We've seen it and we testify and declare it to you, the eternal life that was with the Father and revealed to us. He's talking about Jesus. Yes, Jesus is God. I mean, they almost took that for granted because of the resurrection. But he was also a man. And the New Testament tells the story of both. We have the opposite problem today, right? I mean, no one denies that Jesus was a man. I mean, almost across the board, throughout uh, our recent history, you could ask anyone on the planet and they could probably say, oh yeah, Jesus was a person who lived in the Middle East around the turn of the millennia. And you go, okay, well, that, that's true, right? But how few people today are willing to believe that Jesus is God? It's the opposite problem we have today. But the reality of the resurrection is compelling. It's calling us to that kind of belief. So much so that the disciples and many of these eyewitnesses actually gave their own lives, sometimes in gruesome ways, because they would not give up the testimony that Jesus had been resurrected. That a man who was dead came back to life in physical form, interacted with his followers, launched them into mission. And that was their story, and they stuck to it until it cost them their lives. Now, the leaders had devised this conspiracy theory, this scheme, saying that certainly they made a plan and they stole his body and they hid it away. and They paid off the Roman soldiers to, to, to keep the story going, right? But who would give their life for a lie? I don't think anyone. It's just further evidence that the reality of Jesus' resurrection. The facts add up. They haven't been disproven. But the fact of Jesus' Jesus's resurrection, though amazing, is not the end of the story. The resurrection wasn't the end. It wasn't the climactic moment. It was actually just a new beginning. And it was a new beginning by which God makes the promise of a new beginning to all who would follow him in faith. That means you and I, because of the resurrection, can be resurrected. Jesus not only was resurrected, Jesus resurrects. Present tense. What does the resurrection tell us? Well, number one, the, the li our life, this life is not the end. It's not the end. As one author put it, because of Jesus, death is not a wall, it's a doorway. Right? The unholy trinity, Chuck Swindoll, the darkness, death, the devil, they have been defeated. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of that chapter, he said, death has lost its sting. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? See, if death were a bee, Jesus took the stinger. And it's only got one. So it can buzz around you all you want, it can annoy you, it can bother you, but it cannot harm you when your faith is in Jesus. We've got nothing to fear in following Jesus, not even death. This changes everything about us. Did you notice the words that the angel and Jesus spoke to the women in the garden of the tomb? Do not be afraid. Wow, the resurrection changes everything for us. And if this is true, the people of faith in Jesus, we can live this life in freedom and joy in anticipation of the next. 
the women left the tomb area with fear. Not the same kind of fear as the soldiers that knocked them over. Now this was a fear not of afraid, but a fear of amazement. They left with fear and they also left with great joy. Great joy. And then Jesus met them in the garden. Jesus walks up and says, greetings. Now, we don't really talk to each other that way. It would probably scare you if anyone said greetings, regardless of had they just resurrected or not. But Jesus walks up and says greetings. The unfortunate part is that this is not a good English translation of this word. Like if you were going to look up in the dictionary, you know how there's like definition one, definition two, definition three. Well, this is the one that probably sounds better because it is a greeting. But number one definition of this word is the word rejoice. So Jesus walks up to these women who are walking away with great joy and he reciprocates that sentiment with them by egging them on in their joy. Rejoice. Yes, keep going. Yes, this is a celebration. Yes, death has been defeated. New life is available. A new beginning is for you. And yeah, go tell the disciples. Remember, I already told them a couple chapters ago, I'm heading to Galilee. I'm going to be right in front of them. Get them over there. I'm going to meet them there, right? Rejoice. Easter is about celebration and joy. It's why we take days off school. It's why we eat big meals. It's why we spend time with family and give each other chocolate and presents and all kinds of stuff. Because celebration and joy is just a glimpse from this life into the next. A new beginning. But the new beginning that Jesus' resurrection offers isn't just for when you die. Now that will be glorious. But he offers a new beginning now, in the here and now. Don't miss the story of the disciples in Matthew 28. They've had a tough road. It says in verse 16 that the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. These are 11 men who had followed Jesus for three years, They'd been Jesus' closest allies. They'd been his apprentices. They were learning from him. Yet, in Jesus' darkest hour, they denied him, and they betrayed him, and they deserted him. Some hid while Jesus was crucified. Some watched anonymously from a safe distance. But in all four gospel accounts, there was only one disciple, one story of one disciple who was anywhere close to the cross, or at least close enough for Jesus to notice. Then, not a single disciple assisted with Jesus' burial that we know of. Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning. All of this time passed, and it seemed that there was growing an uncrossable chasm between the disciples and Jesus. Because Jesus was dead. And the disciples were left with feelings of regret, feelings of disillusionment, feelings of disappointment, feelings of guilt, shame, probably confusion. Can I just ask you, have you ever felt any of those feelings when it comes to spiritual things? Probably so. That's almost universal. And so when the women came to the disciples and said, 
Jesus is alive. And he's going to Galilee. He's called you to meet him there. They traveled to Galilee. Now, what do you do when you travel? You pack your bags, right? These guys didn't pack any physical bags, but I guarantee you they packed the emotional baggage, the spiritual baggage of those feelings of guilt and shame, disappointment, disillusionment, confusion. They knew they had deserted him. They knew they had denied him, and that weighed heavy on them. And they carried it all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now, what happens when they come face to face with the resurrected Jesus? Verse 17, while I know they were probably curious, they were probably excited that Jesus was alive, verse 17 shows us as they encounter the resurrected Jesus face to face that they are still carrying this baggage. It says, some worshiped, but some doubted. Maybe you've been there spiritually. Some worshiped, but some doubted. So what does Jesus do with that? Well, you might recognize a passage in the scripture uh, that gets quoted often in church. It happens just after this where Jesus says, all authority in, in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? And then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things I've commanded you, and, and hey, I'm going to be with you the whole way. Remember that part? Well, right before that, this is what he says. It was actually not what he said, it's what he did. It's that Jesus came near to them, to all of them, to the worshipers and to the skeptics. Jesus came near to them. Carrying their baggage to him, he came near to them. Just like the New Testament book of James, chapter 4, verse 7, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, we took a mission trip to uh, Africa a few years ago, and we packed suitcases full of theology books to leave with African pastors. And uh, I don't know if you've checked in at an airport in a while, but there's like a, an anxiety that happens when you set your bag on the scale to check in. You're going like, I know I packed, I know I tried to pack well, but like if this thing goes over 50 pounds, it's going to cost me a lot more money. <laughs> and so there's this team of people with bags full of books trying to get them onto an airplane. Of course, it's going to be more than 50 pounds. And so we figure out how much it's going to cost us to take all this stuff over there. We're going, there's got to be a better way, right? So what does everybody do on the team? Everybody in the middle of the, the terminal there, gate, whatever you call it, they uh, open their bags on the floor. Everybody's bags are open, which when you pack a bag for a two-week trip, you don't plan on anybody looking in your bag, right? So all of a sudden, everything you took is right there out in the open, okay? And everybody's looking at everybody's bags, and we're looking, we're passing books around. We're going, okay, you take that. Okay, you take this. You're also, you know, I got more room in my backpack. I'll stuff a few here in my backpack. That'll lighten the load for that. And we're just rearranging and repacking things, trying to make them acceptable to the airline, right? This is what a lot of people do when they come to Jesus with baggage, I'm coming to Jesus, but let me just do a little rearranging first. All right, let me just take this thing out of here. Let me put this there. Let me just add, you know, that's kind of a heavy thing. I don't know if I'm ready for Jesus to see that yet. So let me just slip that into my backpack. I'm just going to hold on to it. Here you go, Jesus. You can have this stuff that's acceptable, or at least what I think is acceptable to you. And then I'll keep this other heavy stuff to myself. 
But that is not the way the resurrected Jesus calls us to come to him. As evidenced in Matthew 28, the disciples bring to him all of their sin, probably shame, guilt, not knowing what he'd say. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He should have said, so you're condemned. He should have said, I can't believe you deserted me. Look, I just resurrected. I've got all this power now. Now you're going to pay. But he didn't. They brought it to him, and he came near to them. Whatever baggage you carry today, you can bring it to Jesus. Every bit of it. The heavy, the light, whatever sin, whatever guilt. Do you know what he does? He sends it on that little conveyor belt right to the cross where it's already been paid for in full. And it goes, like the Bible says, as far as from the east is from the west. You don't ever have to pick it up again. Jesus paid for it. There is no burden, no heaviness, no sin, no guilt, no confusion, no disillusionment that's too heavy for the resurrected Jesus to take on and to take care of. Jesus calls you to him for a new beginning without the weight of your sin. Now that's a life we can live. So how did you come today? Did you come excited for church, ready for worship, resurrection day, happy Easter everyone, smile on your face? Did you come a little nervous? I'm not sure what's gonna happen here this morning. These are new people. Did you come a little curious going, okay, you know, this, what's the deal? People keep talking about Easter, resurrection. What does that even mean? Did you come hesitant? Like, I'm not sure I really want to be there, but that's where my family's going, so I'm just going to end up there, and then we're going to have a ham later or something. That's the, that's the path to the ham. Did you come carrying baggage? I mean, think, these disciples went from Jerusalem to Galilee with the weight of how they treated Jesus on their shoulders. You came from your house to this building today. Probably even walking in from your car, you might have felt the baggage of what you carried called sin. The message Jesus wants you to hear today is you can have a new beginning, a fresh start, because he conquered sin and death by dying on a cross and being resurrected. He can resurrect your life Take on your baggage. It's already paid for. It's already taken care of. He'll take it from you, and you'll never have to pick it up again. That's a life of freedom and a life of joy and a life that's available to you even today. Would you bow your head in prayer with me? God, we see the resurrected Jesus. God, we acknowledge your power is far beyond ours. What little control I have over my life is not worth me hanging on to, God. When I can submit and yield and surrender to Jesus, who is a life giver, who conquers death, who grants eternity with you as a gift that's free. My prayer today is, God is for us who believe that we would be strengthened 
for those of us who are struggling to believe or yet to believe, God, would you bring us as you come near to us to that point of faith that changes everything about us. We can lay our sin at Jesus' feet and he'll take them and cast them as far as from the east as the west, giving forgiveness and inviting us into a relationship with you, adopting us as your son and your daughter. What a good, good news to tell. So God, if someone needs to believe that today, my prayer is that they would hear it, understand it, that you would speak to them and that you would draw them to yourself. Start doing something in them that they can't deny. God, stir them up to where they go. I can't leave here today without somebody knowing that God's doing something in my life. We praise you for the resurrection. May we be people of the resurrection who live this new life, not for ourselves, but for you because you died for us and were raised. Now we respond to you, Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen.